Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Another episode of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Shelly and joined with me today from the beautiful Rocky Mountains is my talented co-host, Serge Boudreau. Serge, how are you? I like talented. That's a new one. I think I'm glad you're expanding your vocabulary. Um, and I'm not in the Rocky Mountains today. Actually, I was in Canmore for the last week, oh. days, but I'm back in in the lovely city of Calgary, where I love to be. So, um, how is everything going with you, Shelley? I haven't talked to you in a while. Oh, it's great. You know what? I'm. Uh, I am. Things are just coming up roses. I, I just can't even explain it. I, I really feel um, the industry is starting to pick up. Um, you know, kids are going to go back to school. Things are starting to feel like, okay, we might have this, at least some things figured out. Um, but I've just had such great conversations with clients this week. Um, very positive ones about um, the outlook here for uh, going into last part of Q3 and into Q4. So yeah, it'll be interesting with our guest today. I think I'm, I'm looking for yeah. his insights on what uh, he's expecting in the next couple of quarters, but I'm definitely seeing an uptick. I, I know mm-hmm. on my end, we're, we're hiring to really a fever pace that uh, we saw a dramatic drop off. So that's a good yeah. sign. Uh, but yeah. how, about, uh, how about they introduce our guest? So oh, please. really excited to have Adam Gordon. So Adam, if you've never heard of him, and you probably have, because if you listen to Brain Food Live, he's Hungley's wingman, as he likes to describe himself. But I, I think where a lot of people might know him as well is uh, Adam is quite... Uh, is quite popular in the space that he is the CEO of Candidate ID. And we're going to talk a lot about Candidate ID and we're going to talk a lot about talent pipelining in this episode. So welcome, Adam. Really excited to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's a real honor. And I especially like doing things like this where it's across the Atlantic because <laughs> they've got a slightly different perspective on things. And it's really interesting to uh, get different people's perspectives. I, I'm curious. So I've uh, I heard it, the first time I heard of you was on Chat and Cheese podcast. But then I've like we were talking about uh, we started recording. Shelly feels like she knows you because she listens to Brain Food Live all the time, and I do as well. But how did you connect with Hungly? I guess it's a small world as far as the recruitment space. But just curious how you guys connected and um, how that came about. Yeah, sure. We met in an Irish pub in Paris in October 2016. It was the evening before HR, the HR Tech World Congress, which is a big event that has become Unleash, it's called now. And um, it was our first time really exhibiting candidate ID in public the following day. So my co-founder, Scott, and I were really excited to find out what, uh, what, the, what the event thought about what we had to offer. Um, and if I look, look back now, I'm pretty embarrassed about the way we were describing what we were offering because it was very, very complicated. But um, Hung and a couple of other guys just came over and introduced themselves um, at uh, Bill Berman's uh, drinks event the night before the, uh, the, night before the actual uh, conference itself. And uh, we hit it off straight away. I think Scott and, Scott and Hung had a few Glenlivets together and... Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was good. So, yeah, we, you can't really avoid you can't really avoid each other. People who people who like to go to events, they like to yeah. uh, talk and find out about recruitment. You can't you can't avoid each other. You end up wherever you are in the world. You know, we're in the same continent. 
we're, we're practically, Hung and I are practically in the same country. So um, you can't avoid each other, but even, even across the world, you, you know, you meet so many great and interesting people in, in our industry. And I really love Hung. Yeah, it's a, it's a small world. It's funny because uh, we met Hung uh, not too long ago and, uh, and we had Hung actually in a show, but I've, uh, I've always been a big fan of the Recruiting Bird Food, yeah, uh, both the podcast and uh, obviously the newsletter, which is amazing on that end. But yeah. I'm curious. So uh, everyone has a different story of how they started to re recruitment. And I read that uh, you decided to get into recruitment because you had a buddy that was driving a Mercedes and only been in recruitment two years. And that really enticed you to go into recruitment. So have you learned, and now that you've been in recruitment for a long time, have you learned <laughs> a lot where you're going. To, make, to make money than recruitment to buy Mercedes or um, you're still living that dream? <laughs> <laughs> it took me a long time. So I was a recruitment consultant for three years. And um, I mean, in the first year of that, I was massively out earning all of my friends who went to go and train to be accountants and lawyers and things like that. By the second year, I was earning like really pretty decent money. And the third year I was earning excellent money. But um, so, you know, I didn't buy a Mercedes back then. I could have done. I then, I then left working as a recruitment consultant to go into a global recruitment marketing agency because what I realized was I didn't really want a career in making placements. But what I, what I absolutely loved was the marketing, marketing aspects of it. So I took a very, very significant pay cut um, in my third, at the end of my third year in recruitment in order to move into marketing. And it took me quite a long time, like probably took me until, it probably took me a, the best part of a decade to get back to earning what I had been earning, making wow. placements every month. Yeah. Um, so it did what I expected, but... Um, Quite honestly, interviewing candidates was not my bag. Um, all of the attraction elements to it, whether that's sourcing mm -hmm. or whether that's the marketing aspects of it, that was the bit I really loved. Quite honestly, by the time somebody came in and said, uh, you know, I wasn't really caring what they wanted to do with their career. I was only caring about getting them to the room in the first place. So I realized that, you know, um, my uh, interest was in, a, was in a specialist kind of area. Cool. Yeah, that's interesting because I think it, I'm very similar in that sense. I'm not a big fan of interviewing candidates. I love attracting. I think that's and Shelly, myself and Shelly <laughs> talk about this all the time. I, I think one of the things first episode, Shelly, we talked about what yeah, you did. most and one for you was interviewing candidates. And I was like, yeah, no, I, I yeah. buys it. But I like the fact of getting them there through sourcing. So I think we, we have a lot in common there. Yeah. So I, I'm, I, I'm the odd man out then. Cause I, that's my claim to fame. I have easily interviewed well over 10,000 people easily in my career. I've been recruiting for 25 years and yeah. I never get tired of hearing the story. Like, why did you decide to do that? Like, that's why the, this podcast has just been like duck water. It's just yeah. like, oh yeah, yeah. I love hearing people's story. Yeah. I, I do enjoy, I've got to be honest, actually, you know, now you say that, I really do enjoy hearing people's story, but this was like newly qualified accountants, yeah. 25 years old, just qualified from KPMG. Yeah. I wasn't that interested in their story. Um, accountants, <laughs> well, that says it all. perfectly honest. Okay, could we get more um, right? <laughs> the, the other thing about this, though, is because I'm, I mean, I sometimes do think to myself, could I, could I be like head of talent acquisition at some business? And then I think, no, because you've got zero interest in a lot of the job. 
Um, and people often say to me, hey, look, I need some uh, some sort of, you know, better way of assessing candidates and, you know, what do you recommend? And I go, I, I basically, I barely know the name of the products, let alone what they do. Um, so if you want to talk about traction, I'd talk about it all day and night, but um, assessment's not, not something that's for me. Mm. So I want to come back to something. You, you know, when you were talking about when you first met um, Hung Lee um, in a pub, like I was actually starting to think, well, that's got to be a true story. Um, so take us back to that four years ago when, when you were first launching Candidate ID. Um, what was the problem that you were trying to solve? This is actually, I, I've got a very specific uh, story about this, actually. I was with, um, I was with Pfizer um, about a year previously. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I ran up from 2009, um, I ran a recruitment research business, a sourcing business, basically. Okay. And in two, summer 2015, I was with the team there in the UK looking after the EMEA uh, talent acquisition. And I said to them, you know, how, how are we performing? It was a review meeting. And they said, it's going really great. Um, around 30% of the people you're identifying for us are not already on our database. <clears throat> and we're very happy with that. And I went, in whose world is 30% a good result? Surely, like, 90% of the people we're finding for you, that's what you're paying us to do, is find people yeah. you don't already know. Mm-hmm. And then they said, well, yeah, it's not as easy as that. We've got 10 million people on Taleo. And I said, 10 million people, that's twice the population of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I then asked some other companies that we were working with, customers. I asked IQVIA, Quintiles as they were. I asked Mondelez. I asked Thermo Fisher Scientific and a few others. How many people have you got on your ATS? And they said, I mean, the answer was always a seven-figure answer. Yeah. And I went, wow, so why is it you're doing anything on candidate attraction? And the, the reason that they still needed to find people was because they could go onto their ATS and they could go, let's try and find um, clinical project managers based in London. And they were either using an applicant tracking system that wouldn't allow them to search for people at all because everybody was connected to a rec rather than in a Got folder. It. Yep. And then the second reason was even if they had an ATS, which was allowing them to go and search for people based on job titles or skill sets, they would bring up 5,000 results. And then they'd go, "Mm, some of these people have been in here for a month and some of them have been in here for three years. years. Exactly. I have no idea who who to pick up the phone to or who to make contact with. This is probably dead information. And they saw that they could search LinkedIn as easily as they could their ATS. In fact, more, more easily. And the data was all much better. So they had zero incentive to go onto the applicant tracking system. Now, a few businesses said to me, well, we've got a CRM and it's like really intended to solve for that problem a little bit. But unless you update it all the time and you're constantly talking to your candidates, then that's also just stale data. It is just stale information. So the information on LinkedIn is better than it is in the CRM. So it's all about for recruiters and sources, it's all about rewards. Where do they spend their time? How can they fill jobs faster? They can fill jobs faster by spending all their time on LinkedIn rather than on their own database. <clears throat> so we worked out that for an average company, it's cost them 10 US dollars per person to build that database. So if they've got 10 million people in the database, they've got a $100 million asset 
that they weren't using. And I just went, we've got to fix this. So we worked with a few companies on a sort of, we, we started extending our service mm-hmm. more into the kind of candidate nurture side. And we started creating email copy and we started using MailChimp and we started using Bitly for tracking links and we started creating landing pages and we pulled half a dozen different technologies together to create a kind of nurture service. So instead of just finding the candidates for our customers, we'd find them and then we'd put them through a drip, you know, kind of email campaign and using the Bitly links, we'd be able to determine roughly which people were clicking and might be interested. But um, if you've got a database of 100 candidates, that's okay. You can make that work. If you've got 1,000 candidates, it starts to become too difficult. More than that, it's a, it's a big problem, and you can't, it's not scalable. So we realized, Scott and I started talking at the beginning of 2016. I told him about this problem, and he's, a, he's an expert on marketing technologies and automation technologies. Mm-hmm. And he started showing me some technologies in, within the mainstream marketing world. And I went, wow, okay. So if, you, if they can do that and they can track sales prospects clicks around that company's website and social media and landing pages, and it can serve uh, salespeople with marketing qualified leads automatically every single day, then there's direct par- parallels with talent attraction here. So we, uh, we found a, we found a, a sort of open source um, marketing software we put, took some of my customers' uh, candidates, put them into this, and on a much more automatic way than what I'd been building up as a service, we ran, you know, for a month or two, we ran some projects for three or four different companies. Um, by the end of those kind of months or two, um, they knew much more about their candidates. They, they, they had much more transparency around their, around their um, the, who they should pick up the phone to. So... We just went, right, okay, now we need to go and work out how to build a technology company because both of us were from service backgrounds in marketing and in recruitment. And so we spent six months trying to work out how to build a technology company. And um, that's, the, that's how it all came, to, came together at the beginning. So, you know, I, I, uh, I can totally relate. I remember the first time uh, somebody showed me um, a, a CRM system and I thought, this is exactly what recruitment needs. Um, and I knew somebody would invent it somehow. I mean, it wasn't going to be me, but <laughs> I remember thinking that as well because it is done for customers. And, uh, and so making that translate into recruitment. So, you know, something that Serge talked about at the top of the show is like what percentage of talent acquisition, like practitioners, do they really understand what, a, what is talent pipelining? Like, or is that a term that is it an outdated term is it a new term like i i mean when i think about it i've got a a clear visual cuz we're in the oil and gas part of canada so we know what pipelines are god that's all we hear about um but help us help us and help the audience understand what do we really mean by talent pipelining yeah the oil and gas analogy is a really great one so in your pipeline you've got oil that's in the ground you've got oil that's at the beginning of the pipe and you've got oil that's about to come out the pipe, right? So in a sales pipeline environment, most people understand that as well. Yeah. The sales pipeline environment, who might I sell something to? Who have I got the start of a relationship with? And who have I got um, an opportunity to actually sell something with? That's what a sales pipeline looked like. 
A yeah. sales pipeline is not everybody you might be able to sell something to. In recruitment, we far too often use the term talent pipeline to describe the total addressable market. And, you know, everybody, everybody we might hire in the future. That's not a talent pipeline. So the big difference is a talent pipeline needs to be, you need to be able to order the candidates according to, in my definition, it's who's cold, who's warm, and who's hire ready. That's how I categorize it. Um, I have come across other companies that have genuinely been building talent pipelines and they've got slightly different variations on that, cold, warm, and hire ready. Um, But then I've met probably nine out of 10 TA people that I meet think a talent pipeline is a list of people. So um, it's, uh, it's definitely a small number of organizations that have real talent pipelines. And I think the reason for that is because there's a, there is a law called Dunbar's Law, which says that a human can maintain 150 relationships at one time using their mind. <laughs> now, if a recruiter is expected to maintain 151 or 300, or they've got a list of 5,000 or 50,000 people, they can't have a relationship with probably any of them, really. Mm-hmm. So this is why... I think that um, traditional ATS and CRM technology doesn't really enable the development of proper talent pipelines because you've all your all it allows you to do is store candidates and add notes about them or categorize them in some kind of way, but it's just a system of record whereby one month one month later that person's circumstances have changed. So you you really need automation technology to maintain the relationships with candidates and to be able to automatically decide who's cold, warm, and higher ready based on their interactions with your communication. So that's, that's really the, the big difference. Got um, it. Yeah. Got it. So, yeah, do you know, I, I, I totally understand. I also understand kind of the, the limitations, uh, not just, well, having been in recruitment, I get it. You know, and and you're right. Somebody's situation changes in 30 days, and and I love that analogy to the sales process because it is about uh, pre-qualified. And you know, I think about like how can we, you know, there was a lot of talk about five or seven years ago about building talent communities. You know, like if if accountants is an easy one, right? I mean, and then you've got your little subcommittees that are tax accountants and so on and so forth. So, but I, I don't know how that ever, like, is it still a thing, right? They're, they're closed groups. But anyways, thank you for that. Thank you. That's, uh, that's a wonderful analogy, especially for us here in Canada. Um, of understanding. Can I, can, I just, can, I just, um, can I just give you my perspective on talent communities since you brought that yeah, up? Please. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a subject that I... Um, I found a YouTube video that I posted about talent communities about eight years ago. Um, That's about right, seven or eight years it was, ago. Yeah, there yeah. was 30, 30 points. Here, It was my 30-point plan for talent communities, for how to build them. Um, and the problem is that back then when everybody was talking about talent communities, they were talking about lists. That's what they were talking about. Yeah. They were talking about talent communities in the same way they were talking about talent pipelines and which was a list. So they were badly describing what should have been an actual community where everybody can talk to each other. 
So a talent community needs, if a, for a talent community to list, to exist, it needs to be um, somewhere where everybody can interact with each other. A LinkedIn group is a good example of that. A Facebook group is a good example of that. Yeah. And we actually were building, as part of my sourcing business, we built and, and managed for companies a lot of absolutely great um, talent communities. Now, when I, when I saw companies doing things like calling the best calling the world's best lawyers, come and join the BAE Systems talent community. And I'm thinking, whoa, you've really misunderstood what a talent community is about. You're using this for lead generation. They don't care about being on your list. And that's all you're offering there. The world's best lawyers, come and join our talent community. I'm thinking, nah, you've, you've, you've branded this. You've turned it into some, there's no value to the individuals. Yeah. It's a list. Um, at best, it's an email list. Um, so uh, talent communities have got wonderful, wonderful opportunity um, yeah. for employers, but very few are doing it right. I've got one brilliant example, which is Specsavers. Specsavers are not in Canada, but they're one of our customers and they're in about 10 different countries. It's the, I think it's the second biggest optometry retailer in the world. Mm. And they've got a talent community called Green Club. And it's not branded as Specsavers anywhere. It's a login website. People log in, and when they log in, there's a message board. There's videos. There's continuous professional development. There's events they should be signing up to. That's a proper talent community, and it's unbelievably powerful. And it gives them all of their optometry hires. Talk about that. So say um, a lot of organizations have no talent community active pipeline, no pipeline yeah. strategy at all. If yep. you're a key leader, how would you start that? Where would you start? Yeah, great question, Serge. That's, I'm sure that's top of everybody's mind. I think of my past work history, we had tens of thousands. I don't even know where to begin. Like, help us. <laughs> so the first, thing, the first thing you've got to remember is that uh, most people are not in the market looking for a job. So um, let's go to pre-COVID times for a second. Yeah. LinkedIn told us last year that 80% of people were not looking for a job. Um, you know, and and uh, from our data, it was about the same. It was 80% of people not looking for a job, around 10% of people tentative and 10% active uh, pursuing opportunities. So what you've, what you've got to then remember is that if 80% of people are not interested in a job just now, they don't care about your job descriptions. And they also don't even care about your employer brand. So you've got to subliminally implant that message to them. And you do that by being useful and relevant for them today, not for them when they work for you, for them today. So uh, positioning hiring managers into the middle of the community, I believe, is a really valuable thing to do because it's, it's, you know, it's talent brand right in front of them. It's subliminal talent branding. Um, is the first thing. The second thing is it's automatic trust because they've got the same, uh, you know, technical backgrounds. Um, and then the, you know, the, the third thing is it's uh, it's a great opportunity for them to become impressed by the people that they would be working with or for. So it's a it's a it's a very early stage of the uh, it's a very early stage recruitment activity, but it just should never be positioned as that. So for those eighty percent, which is most people that you might want to hire in the future, just bear in mind, they don't care about your employer brand uh, at this point. And, you know, they, 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 they want, they, they will be impressed with you in different ways 
if you avoid talking about yourselves and your company. So let me get this straight, though. I'm uh, So I'm thinking, um, you know, my last kind of corporate job before I, I went out on my own, um, we had a database of like tens of thousands. It, it had to be. I think it was like 7,000 applicants a year yep. um, who already knew who the company was. Yep. Um, is there any hope? Like, is there really any hope? Like, should companies, like, do you just got to start somewhere? Um, you know, they've got this uh, database that, like you say, depending on the applicant tracking system, um, do you just dump it? Like, do you just dump it and start all over at some point? Because, you know, you made a choice about an applicant tracking system back in 2010. Um, and, you know, that's the best you could do at the time. But you do have all these people who who know your your employer brand. They applied to you at some point. They obviously had hopes and dreams. Um, is there anything can be done with that? Or is it really just like you say, it's stale data, like just let it go, move on. Like I just, we don't even know, like where do you turn? No, you, de- you definitely, it's the first place you start. Uh, you start with all that, you start with all that data. We've got a phrase that we were up until COVID, we were using the, we used the phrase waking the dead, um, but we've changed that. And we now describe it as waking the data. Yeah, we, waking we, the dead. No, we now call That's it waking, waking the waking. We now call it waking the data. Okay. Um, and this is about the stale data um, that you. We actually did a video. We actually, we actually put put new words to uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller, uh, and we called it uh, on Halloween about three years ago. We we uh, we launched Thriller Waking the Dead, and it was all about your stale candidate data and how you how you enliven it and how hiring you get make hiring managers happy and stuff like that. Anyway, um, they, yeah, you, you absolutely start with that because you're right. They have some knowledge of your brand. Yeah. Even if it was three years ago they applied, they probably remember the company name, if nothing else. So you definitely start with there. But don't, don't, do not assume they want to work for you now because um, they very probably don't. They're very probably in a di- job with a different company, maybe one of your competitors. Maybe you're considered the enemy now. Maybe you're considered the enemy because they got a bad experience back in the day. Maybe you're considered the enemy because they got no response back in the day. Oh, imagine. So you probably got to grow, grovel a little bit. And yeah, the, okay. the, the, that first message that goes out to them may well be, um, you know, from some senior hiring manager that's in the same, got the same kind of professional background as they do, maybe a head of engineering or something like that. Message goes out from the head of engineering. Um, you, you applied for a job with our company at some point in the past and i've got to be honest i'm really sorry that nobody's been in contact with you recently but i'm kicking off a new initiative um, to share useful relevant information with engineers in calgary and um i'd be uh, you know i i'd really appreciate your input in helping us build up you know more knowledge as an industry and i want your feedback on all of this stuff and i hope you're going to be interested in receiving these emails from me or these emails and text message communications or come and join our LinkedIn group or come and join my Facebook group or yeah, whatever it is. So I, I think you've got to start with an apology if you haven't heard from you for years. Imagine. You know, I, I don't always think the challenges with the candidates because in my experience when I'm reaching out to like uh, candidates that have been in the system a long time is I think your approach is perfect because a lot of times they probably had a bad experience um, just based on not being contacted or not being told um, what was going on. But 
The biggest challenge I come across is hiring managers. So we'll go through situations that we interview candidates and we pick the top one. The second one is amazing. It's just not as good as the top one. But that job opens up again, either we're expanding. Um, they don't want to consider that candidate was second or candidates that were great in the pipeline is they want to start from scratch again. And it's it's very frustrating. So what's your perspective on that? Why do you think orgs or hiring managers always want to start fresh? It's been my experience. Have you seen the same? Yeah, absolutely. So first thing, the first thing is that they're often entirely diluted um, is the first thing. The second thing is they probably don't understand recruitment. The third thing is they probably over, they probably have too much self-belief in their own ability to hire and therefore they think they can get like the person that's got three degrees and has as much experience as them and wants to come in on half their salary uh so i think there's a lot of things around expectations but to your specific i mean i'm being semi-flippant of course this doesn't apply to all of them um in terms of the in terms of the, that specific thing which is it also happens in this other way, which is you send, you give them three, you give them, you give them one CV or one resume and the person's perfect. And they go, yeah, okay. Like get them in for an interview, get them in for an interview. And the person's perfect. And then they go, oh, I want to see another three of these <laughs> yeah. before I make a decision. You're like, pull what? that right out of my ear. Here we go. Yeah. 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 So my, my, I believe yeah. that the, the best way to counter this is to build that talent pipeline and build it with as many of the total addressable market as you possibly can. If you're hiring accountants in uh, Vancouver, you want a pipeline with every single accountant in Vancouver. And uh, you know, there's no there's no arguing with the data. The data shows us, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Hiring Manager, that of the seven thousand qualified accountants in our city, six thousand nine hundred of them are on our uh, pipeline. And of those 6,900, here's the 350 who meet the brief of exactly what you're looking for. And of those 350, here's the 35 that are going to be interested in talking to us right now about opportunities. Would you like me to filter these 35 or would you like to do it yourself? Um, you know, I, I know that's a bit simplistic what I just said, but data really, no, but you can't argue with data. And so I, I, I really, you've got massive competitive advantage if you've built up a talent pipeline that includes everybody that you might hire. Now that's impossible. Of course it's impossible, but you know, can you get close to it? You can certainly get more than 50% of the way close to it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it all is, it's really how you create your strategy and how you, you put in your pipeline as part of your overall strategy where you're hiring managers, because this is what they're going to expect. Uh, my hiring managers uh, expect that the talent is coming from our active pipeline and they've already vetted them. So I'm trying to eliminate that exactly to your point with the pipeline. It kind of takes those steps away because we know these candidates are well suited. They've been in the past. Uh, one of the things you mentioned and is going a little bit uh, off the rails is university and degrees when it comes to job postings. And then I saw, I think it was a tweet or I'm not sure something on LinkedIn, where do you talk about? Why are we putting requirements of the university degree for jobs that don't need it? What's your overall thoughts there? Yeah, this one, this, I posted this on LinkedIn 13 days ago and I've now got 320,000 views on this post. Wow. Wow. Three, three and a half thousand comments. 
sorry, three and a half thousand reactions and about three or four hundred comments on this. Um, I've never, you know, I've planned, I've planned easily 500 LinkedIn posts to try and generate a reaction. This was just thoughts while I was on holiday in St. Andrews, and it was just something I was thinking about and going, yeah, this is not good enough. Where it was far, far too many jobs where you're asking for a university degree where it is just not needed. If you're if there's a chance somebody might go to prison or there's a chance they might lose their life or be injured in some way, I think that a university degree is absolutely mandatory for bridge engineers, for surgeons. (laughs) Surgeons, exactly, exactly. (laughs) For people working in procurement or sales or marketing or HR or finance or most business disciplines, there's no need for a degree. If you are a chief financial officer, you need a qual- you need to be a qualified accountant in order to sign off the company's accounts as a representative of the executive committee. You don't need a university degree though, because the university degree is, is superseded by the professional accountancy qualification. So why we're not doing that kind of thing in most professions, whereby either years of experience uh, supersedes that or professional qualifications from industry bodies supersede that is a big problem because in the post, the one thing that I I really think is vital is it exacerbates social immobility. Now, I'm not sure, you know, the demographics in Canada compared to what I know about the UK, but I know that if you walk into any university in the UK, or no, not necessarily any university, but you, you certainly walk into those that are considered to be the premier universities. There's a group called the Russell Group of Universities, which might be the 20 sort of most prestigious yeah. universities, like, of course, Oxford and Cambridge, but also other ones like University of London, Glasgow, Edinburgh, those kinds of universities. Um, yes, a disproportionate number of people will be white. It's as simple as that. Um, in any of these, uh, you know, in any of the, in any of these locations, a, a disproportionate number of people will be white. Why? Why is that? It's because we know that people from immigrant backgrounds are more likely to be living in working class environments or even in poverty compared to white people in the UK, and. Requesting a university degree for a you know forty thousand dollar job in marketing, where somebody without a degree that's got five years experience and is creative as heck, and is is or, or and or is a great manager, etc., isn't really acceptable today. So this is why I thought it was important to talk about this because it is uh, it's a subject that won't disappear. I've got a university. I, I had some people disagreeing with me. Almost everybody agreed with me. Some people disagreed with me and said, no, anybody can go to university. You've just got to work harder. And I said, that's actually my point. You've got to work harder to go to university if you're from a poor background, right? I didn't need to. I came from a, I came from a middle-class background. I didn't need to go and leave school at 16 to go and get a full-time job and support my family the way that other people have had to. Yeah. Going to university for I was streamed straight into university as a middle class kid who went to a private school. So you know, I, I, and and I did nothing. I did nothing at university. I um, 
chased girls and played rugby, quite honestly, and went to nightclubs. Um, and I was an absolute moron. Whereas other people my age were working damn hard doing a job or two jobs to put money into their household you know, finances. Now, that's the luck of the draw. I can't do anything about that. And I can't apologize yeah. for the fact that I was brought up in a middle-class background. I can't do anything about that. But what I can do is attempt to try and reverse some of the exacerbation of this further into people's careers. There's just no need for it. Completely agree. And I thought when I read it, uh, I've always had exactly the same mindset as that is a lot, unless you need a professional, you're a surgeon or whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I've seen it in the world of work where I've had people doing the same job, one with a PhD, and this is in the world of um, software development. Someone had a PhD and someone was self-thought and the self-thought person actually blew the other person out of the water. So um, it, it really depends. Curious, uh, one last question, then uh, we'll, we'll close this up. But as far as looking at COVID, uh, it's definitely affected the world of recruitment. I always say recruiters are sometimes the canary in the coal mine as far as when it comes to layoffs and those the types economy. of economy. Yep. What are you seeing? What, how do you feel about the, the coming three, four quarters? Are we going to see, we have a lot of recruiters that are out of work uh, because companies are not hiring, but we're starting to see that change. How do you see the industry overall in the next uh, couple of quarters, next year? Um, it's difficult to predict the next couple of quarters. I can go a little bit further down the line than that and then come backwards. So I'm going to go 10 years into the future. 10 years into the future, there's far less people working in our industry than there are today. Um, the three jobs that exist are people in branding, people in um, operations, which means managing processes and technology. Um, <laughs> And that's probably it, actually. Branding and, 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 and ops. There's not really many other jobs that need to exist. The 360-degree recruiter job won't need to exist. Sources won't need to exist. There's a, a whole, most jobs won't need to exist. In the, in the short term, I do worry about people in recruitment today because there are, I mean, I know, I know lots of them. I know I, some of them have bought my, my software product because they've got, um, they, they've been told they need to lose, out of a team of 40 recruiters, they've been told they need to lose 10. They're losing 10, but they're bringing in candidate ID to try and, you know, allow the existing 30 to do the job that 40 were doing last year. Yeah. And it's working. This is working. Technology, technology is working in taking over the repetitive tasks that people have been doing and businesses coming from the CEO through to the CFO and the CIO there's downward pressure on every other you know, area, especially in HR and things like that, which has been very human-centric. Um, there's downward pressure to do more with less. And if that means automating a lot of the things you're doing, that's what's happening. Now, I would add to that something else, which is um, for I think there's, there's going to be less opportunities. Um, I think there's gonna, in the short term, there's going to be less opportunities for people who are working in service industries like retail, airlines, hospitality, mm -hmm. um, academia, those types of areas. But there's going to be more jobs created in the short term in talent acquisition, in things like uh, technology companies, biotech businesses, engineering firms, anything with an R&D slant to it. And I can see what's happened. We've had some big retail companies and airlines and things like that who have slipped off of our customer list 
and have slipped off of our sales pipeline over the last sort of four, five, well, specifically sort of four months ago, three, four, five months ago. Um, but we've got we've got more customers now who are in STEM industries. So if I'm a if I'm a recruiter working in retail today and I'm on furlough or I've been made redundant, I'm going to be learning about tech recruitment straight away, and I'm going to be looking to uh, make a move into some kind of STEM industry. Uh, I, 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 I aside from that, you know, a V-shaped recovery would be ideal for everybody. I don't know. I just I just don't I just I just don't know. I'm not I'm not strong enough on economics to really have any insight into what I, what I think might happen. But that's, that's, that's some of my prediction for recruitment. It's, uh, it's not all great, you know, for humans, but um, I, do, I do worry about, and I've said this on Breedford Live, actually, I, 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 do, I, I do worry about a lot of industries. I don't know what the, I don't know what the 3 million, I don't know what the 4 million truck drivers in North America are going to do in 10 years because they're not all going to become data scientists. Yeah, really good insight. And I completely agree with you. Um, Adam, so where, if someone wants to get a hold of you, how do you recommend they get a hold of you? Where can they find you? Um, I am easy to get a hold of. Uh, my email address is adam at candidate.id, which is a really easy one. Uh, I am, I'm easy to I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find on Facebook as well. Uh, and probably on Twitter. If you find, if you look for my name plus candidate ID, you'll find me on any of those three. Don't try and find me on Instagram. I absolutely can't stand it, and you'll you'll never get me there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, Adam, um, I feel like we could just chat all day. I, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Uh, for sharing your knowledge and your story with us. Um, this is fantastic. Um, and, and I think our listeners are really going to appreciate um, your um, sharing of knowledge about talent pipelining, uh, as well as checking out Candidate ID. So, so I, I want to thank you. I wish you every success. And I hope uh, someday we can actually have a, uh, a pub drink together. Have you ever, have you, Adam, have you ever come to Canada? I've not, no. I'd really, oh. really love to. My stepbrother lives in Victoria. Oh. Um, yeah, I've never been to Canada. I've really, And I've got friends who went to university at McGill. And I was yeah. the only one of our group who didn't go over there when we were students to go, to go, and, uh, to go and party in uh, Montreal. Uh, so I, I'd really love to. I'd love to visit Toronto as well. I, yeah, I, I'd really oh. love to. So... I'll, yeah, try, I'll, try, I'll try and make it. We're going to make it happen. You're, we're uh, we're going to make sure that you come down. We're going to invite you personally. Uh, Hung has already agreed to come to. He gave me a 1,000% that he would come. So you yeah. you can come with him. So you can come, come on the same flight or close to the same flight. He's a bit more footloose and fancy free than I am. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to be leaving Scotland. I, I actually don't think I'm going to leave Scotland this year. I've just got, I just don't feel any need to do it. Next year, I'm going to be. I I, I did. I, I, on the, for the last ten years, I've on average done about hundred flights a year, and I'm never. I'm not going to be going back to that at all. I'm going to be far, far more selective. Uh, but can in the next twenty four months, Canada's on the list, definitely. All right. Okay. Deal. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. How much do you understand the future of finance? 
I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.